evening with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you again for the love you show us day by day. We thank you that you are so faithful and steady. We can rely on you. We know that your promises are sure. They stabilize our lives. We pray, Father, that through the study tonight, you would teach us to be more faithful, that we might be uh, those that would endure unto the saving of our souls. We thank you for the exhortations of your word. We know how they are meant to bring health to us, indeed eternal life. We do pray we would be faithful in hearing them and carrying them out. We ask for the forgiveness of our sins, not because of any good that you will find in us or that we might offer to you. But we pray tonight that you would forgive us and show us mercy for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in the book of Hebrews again tonight, after a little hiatus last week. And I'd like to read for you from, verses, from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. We'll jump into the middle of the chapter and read to the end. Hebrews 10, at the 19th verse. Hear God's word. Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day drawing near. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. A man that hath set at naught Moses' law dieth without compassion on the word of two or more witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, think ye, shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were enlightened, ye endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used. For ye both had compassion on them that were in bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions, knowing that ye have for yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. Cast not away, therefore, your boldness, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that having done the will of God, ye may receive the promise. For yet a little while, he that cometh shall come and shall not tarry, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if ye shrink back, my soul hath no pleasure in him. But we are not of them that shrink back unto perdition, but of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. And thus far, God's word. The last time we were together, I had a special discussion of the relationship of uh, Hebrews chapter 10, especially uh, verse 30 and uh, 31, excuse me, verse 30, to the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, the special use of these phrases, vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, and then the Lord shall judge, as we indicated, for and against his people. But this was all part of the paragraph that is rather frightening to most readers and rather difficult also for theologians to deal with, the paragraph that tells us that it is possible for someone 
to sin in such a way that there is no longer a sacrifice available to them, that they can sin the unforgivable sin, and the only prospect for them is the fierceness of fire that devours God's adversaries. The interesting thing is that the author of Hebrews, having come to such a severe warning, now consoles his readers, not because he wants them to in any way mitigate the true danger that they might apostatize and fall away from the faith, but because he wants them to know that uh, God is a, a God who has made provision for his people, he's a forgiving God, and that they do have evidence in their own lives that there is a work begun in them that if they will persevere to the end, salvation shall surely be theirs. And so he begins in verse 32 with the word but. He says, now I've warned you. It's a fearful thing to fall into God's hands. Don't apostatize, but remember this. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were enlightened, ye endured a great conflict of suffering. The author affectionately calls his readers to better things. He does this by having them recall their first love in contrast to the low spiritual condition to which they've declined. The author says, remember the former days. And that should have um, a ring to it. If you'll turn to Revelation, the second chapter, verse 4, I trust you're all familiar with the indictment of the church at Ephesus by Jesus in Revelation 2, beginning at the fourth verse. Jesus says, But I have this against thee, that thou didst leave thy first love. Or if you want to translate it more exactly from the Greek, you don't love as you did at first. I have this against you, that that early enthusiasm, that willingness to endure persecution, that self-sacrificial enthusiasm that you had, you've lost. And Jesus calls the church at Ephesus to repent. He says, turn around from this. You need to be restored to that first condition. And the author of Hebrews is saying something very similar when in verse 32 of our chapter, he says, Call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were enlightened ye endured a great conflict of suffering. He's being affectionate, but he's exhorting them to remember because he wants them to see the difference. He says, You have become such that I have to warn you that you may fall into the hands of the living God and be apostates. That is the, the problem in the congregation. But remember back when? And when is that time that he wants his readers to remember? Call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were enlightened, ye endured. The former days. Actually, because of the uh, conflating of the comparative and superlative senses in the Koine Greek of this period, you could translate this, and I think actually the author means to remember the first days, not just uh, the more first, the former, but he means the absolute first days. Remember way back when you actually became Christians, that particular period in the past when they'd become Christians. And again, this kind of phraseology suggests something about the writing of the book and its timing. These people have been Christians long enough that there's not only a period of their early conversion, but there's also now a secondary period where they've fallen into certain laxity in their Christian life in the author's writing. So this is something that tells us that the uh, book is written by a second-generation Christian, and he's dealing with the second-generation Christian church problem. He says, remember, however, that first period, that particular time in the past when you became Christians. And how does he describe conversion here? What is the word that he uses for becoming a Christian? When you were what? Enlightened. Now, I could go, honestly, I could easily go another hour to an hour and a half just on this. I'm going to resist the temptation to do it. But the use of the word enlightened for a conversion experience is very significant because in the ancient world, the, the religious faiths that competed with Christianity were often of what we call a Gnostic variety. And the Gnostic sects offered salvation on the basis of special enlightenment, special insight that uh, people could have if they were initiated into the Gnostic sects that we're talking about. Here the author of Hebrews tells us the true enlightenment is enlightenment in Christ. 
conversion is described this way. And I'd like to give you a few passages um, to enlighten that metaphor of enlightening. Um, Christianity, coming to Christ, is a matter of turning from darkness to light. Uh, let me pass out these passages, and you can look them up, and we'll read them quickly. Corrine, could you look up uh, Luke 1:79? And uh, let me see, Elric, let me give you John 8:12, and Joe LaJudas, 1 Peter 2:9, Kathy Acts 26:18. Uh, Jean, Ephesians 5.8. Okay, John, Ephesians 5.8, would that be okay? Jeff, Philippians 2.15. And um, Joe, 1 Thessalonians 5.5. How does the Bible describe the purpose of Christ's coming in Luke 1.79? To shine upon them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet. Christ came to shine on those, to give light to those who sit in darkness. John 8, 12. Let me speak Jesus again unto those unto them, saying, I am light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. Jesus says the work that he shall perform will enable us to walk in the light rather than in the darkness. And what is the call of the gospel? 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen generation and royal priesthood. The holy nation is own special Conversion is being called out of darkness into the marvelous light of God's love. The task of the evangelist is described and Acts 26, 18. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in To turn them from what? From darkness to light. From darkness to light. Christ came to enlighten us. The call of the gospel is that we might come out of darkness into light. The task of the evangelist is to turn us from darkness to light. The effect of the coming, uh, excuse me, not of the coming of Christ, but the effect on us when we come to Christ is described in Ephesians 5.8. Ephesians 5.8. right. Walk in the light as children of light, because you were once darkness, but Christ has changed all that. Philippians 2.15. That ye may be blameless and harmless to the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we shine as lights in the world. We shine as lights in the midst of this wicked, dark, evil world. And then uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. For you are all sons of light so we're not of the darkness anymore we're now children of the light we have been enlightened Christ has, sh has shown upon us so that we're no longer uh, like the children of darkness uh, this is a pervasive figure then in the New Testament the idea of enlightenment however more narrowly or technically in theology we speak of enlightenment or illumination as a work of the Holy Spirit. But the work of the Holy Spirit in enlightening us is not a work of revealing new information. We're going to get a distinction down this evening that will help you, especially in talking with our charismatic brothers and sisters in the Lord. Um, not just charismatics, but a large proportion of the Christian world today likes to talk about God revealing things to us or... Uh, to an individual. God revealed to me that I should do such and such. But you see, technically, there's a difference between God revealing new information and God turning on the light so that the information he's given already will now be understood. One is revelation. The other is illumination or enlightenment. God illuminates the word that has previously been given. And if I might use now the language of the Westminster Confession... 
enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. This is not a matter of God laying down new tracks, setting new information in. This is a matter of God illuminating the mind so that we might understand those things given by God. That's in the Confession of Faith, chapter 10, section 1. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. So the light bulb goes on, and the Word of God doesn't sit there in darkness anymore, not being understood. But now this man who was once natural and could not receive or understand or discern the things of the Spirit is born again and is enabled to receive and to profit from the things freely given by God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 14. Uh, Doug, would you read that for us? And let me see, Mark, if you'd be prepared with uh, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 14. Okay, what, why is it that you understand the Bible, Doug, and other individuals in this world do not? They seem just to be blind to it. The natural man, is the natural man able to understand? No, they need to be given to you by God, by the Holy Spirit in particular, changing us so that instead of being blind to those things he has given in the Scriptures, we can understand. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, before it's read, I want you to notice in verse 17, the word revelation is going to be used, but verse 18 will explain in what sense the Holy Spirit reveals things to us. Go ahead. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So you notice the revelation of verse 17 is explained as the eyes of our understanding being illuminated or enlightened, so that now we can understand what God has given to us. Okay, so this is uh, a real quick survey of the biblical use of the word enlightenment or illumination or that figure of speech. Christ came to illumine us. The purpose of God in salvation is to enlighten us. We are to turn from darkness to light. Evangelists call us to that. That's the effect in our lives. We now walk as children of light in the midst of a dark and crooked generation. And the Holy Spirit specifically is the author of that work who makes us formerly natural men, now born again, able to receive the things of the Spirit and to discern them properly, that the eyes of our understanding would be illuminated. The author of Hebrews is referring to that complex and very rich theological concept when he says, Call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were enlightened, ye endured a great conflict of suffering. Obviously, the inward work of enlightenment was not kept secret by the readers. Enlightenment is not the sort of thing you can have just like this private inner light. But when Jesus shines his light into our lives, you see, it's got to be refracted out again. Those who are enlightened become children of light in a dark world. Jesus, at one point, claims to be the light of the world in John's Gospel. At another point, he says, ye are the light of the world, right? And so we have to bear that in mind that when the light shines, it shines not only within us, but through us upon others, too. And so the inward work of enlightenment wasn't kept a secret by these readers, it led to such an open confession of faith that it resulted in their enduring a hard struggle with suffering. Does this seem like the sort of thing that would encourage you? The author of Hebrews says, you're in danger of falling away from the living God. You may apostatize. Be careful that you don't uh, sin the sin unto death. Don't sin willfully after you've received the knowledge of the truth. And then he comforts them by saying, but call to remembrance those days when you endured a great conflict of suffering. You might think, well, that's something of a downer. After all, it's that suffering that is causing them to consider giving up Jesus Christ right now. But the author's point is, you've endured previously. Why did you endure? 
If you endured then, it's ridiculous to give up now. You have endured a hard struggle with sufferings. I'd like to point out that the early church struggled with persecution from both uh, Jews and Gentiles, and later the Roman Empire would be uh, primary a persecutor of the church. In the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire will be described as, in the city of Rome in particular, as uh, uh, Babylon the whore, uh, who drinks the blood of God's saints and uh, rides upon a wicked beast that is persecuting the earth and so forth. However, in the days in which Hebrews was written, what was most vivid, especially in those former days, the first days when these people were converted, what was very vivid was the persecution of the Jews. The Gentile world was pretty accustomed to a large variety of religious cults. And for that reason, in general, the Gentile world was somewhat tolerant. However, Judaism was not a tolerant religion. Judaism was exclusivistic. The Jews believed they were the one and only people of God. And the only way of salvation was uh, through the Old Testament, through the promises of Jehovah. They were right about that, of course. But now that they um, had rejected the Messiah sent to them, they were no longer the people of God. Christ said the kingdom of God was taken from them and given to a nation producing the fruit thereof. I wonder if we could get a couple of doors open here. If anyone else feels the mugginess in here like I am. Because the Jews had rejected the Messiah, as John says, he came into his own and his own received him not, they were especially um, intolerant of those that decided to follow this person from Nazareth, this, uh, this carpenter who was crucified, to turn from Judaism to Christ as the only way. Remember, the New Testament teaches that in John 14.6. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say we have two different approaches to Judaism here. You have your approach, I have my approach, and we need to live with uh, this spirit of detente, right? Kind of a mutual uh, self-respect where even though we have a completely different understanding of God and salvation, we, we really honor each other's opinion and we want to live in peaceful coexistence. Jesus wouldn't have any of that. That's part of the offense of the cross. Jesus says, outside of me, you're dead. There is no hope outside of me. And the early church preached that in Acts 4, verse 12. What was the proclamation? There is no other name uh, published among men under heaven whereby we must be saved except that of Jesus. Christ alone is the way of salvation. And then not only was that offensive to the Jews, but as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 23, the idea of a crucified Savior was just abhorrent. It was a stumbling block. A, a Jew of that day and age, not understanding the Old Testament to be sure, but a Jew of that day and age just couldn't get over the idea that the one sent by God, the anointed one of God, would suffer and suffer as a criminal and as a blasphemer who would claim to be God himself. And so Christianity, you have to understand, in the first generation of the church was especially detestable to the Jews. And because of the Jewish hatred of those exclusivistic claims of Christ, who was a crucified criminal as far as they were concerned, this would lead to the expulsion from the family for a person who became a Christian. The Jews would just throw out of their families those who um, claimed the name of Christ. Jesus said that would happen, right? He said, I'm come to set uh, a mother against her daughter-in-law and, and so forth and so on. I've come to bring a sword that's going to divide families. Jesus said, there's not going to be peace. It's impossible. With the great religious divide over my claims, families will be divided as well. So it brought expulsion from the family. And for many Christians in uh, Judea, especially in the Jerusalem area, it brought the ruin of their business. I want you tonight to especially appreciate that, that to become a Christian, if you were a Jew in that day and age to become a Christian, often meant financial destruction because no one would trade with you, because the Jews would just turn their back on dealing with anybody who was a Christian, and it meant the loss of your reputation socially. 
the Jews of Judea were violent against Christian converts. Let's look at this. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 to 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 16. Paul commends the Christians at Thessalonica saying, For ye, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. And how did they imitate the churches in Judea? For ye also suffered the same things of your own countrymen, even as they did of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove out us, and please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, to fill up their sins always. But the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Paul says there is a tremendous conflict that is developed between Christians and Jews. And he commends the Thessalonian Christian Jews because they have been persecuted by their countrymen, even as the churches in Judea have been persecuted. Paul makes historic allusion to that. There's a special persecution going on in Judea. And this persecution is leading to people being killed and being driven out. And he tells us that the wrath that is due to the Jews is come upon them to the uttermost. It's to its brim point. We're just about to the place where you can expect God to um, uh, break forth in judgment against Jerusalem. Paul's making allusion to that specific situation in 1 Thessalonians here. The Jews hated the Christians. Remember also Paul's very prominent concern for a collection of relief funds for the Christians in Jerusalem in particular. We read of that not only in Acts, but also in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians. And why is it that the Christians in Jerusalem in particular needed help? Very likely because they had been despoiled of their goods. Not only was there a famine there, but they were hurt all the harder because they were having their property taken away from them. They had suffered the loss of their very property, as we see in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 34. For ye both had compassion on them that were in bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions. And so what kind of persecution did the Christians undergo in those early days when they were enlightened? Verses 33 and 34 tell us, sometimes, my translation is partly, but that's misleading. It doesn't mean like, you know, you partially had these things happen. I mean, sometimes what happened is that you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and sometimes you became partakers with them that were so used. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to abuse and to affliction. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. Paul has something similar to say. For I, thank God, I, for I think God hath set forth us, the apostles, last of all, as men doomed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, both the angels and men. The language is very similar. We're made a spectacle. We're made a gazing stock to the world. The whole world looks on in derision. Now, my guess is you all know what it is to feel very privately, you know, the, the guilt or the shame of something you've done wrong but it makes it ten times worse when it's exposed publicly, right? And Paul says it's not just the people snicker at you behind their doors or they won't have you over to dinner anymore, but you're publicly abused. You're made a gazing stock in front of people. Paul doesn't say that in Hebrews, pardon me. He's saying that about the apostles, but the author of Hebrews uses similar language saying you're publicly exposed to abuse and affliction while at other times they have been made partners with those who were so treated. And in particular, verse 34 tells us they had become, they had shown compassion on them that were in bonds. They showed compassion on those who had been imprisoned. In Matthew 25, verses 39 to 40, Jesus himself had spoken of that as a possible form of Christian service, to show compassion on those who were imprisoned. Matthew 25, verses 39 and 40. And here the righteous say to Jesus, And when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, 
Inasmuch as ye did it unto one of these, my brethren, even these least, ye did it unto me. Jesus says, when you go visit a Christian brother in prison, you're visiting me. It's as though you administered to me. It's um, something we can't just read and, and, and not reflect upon, what these Christians went through. To become a Christian in that day and age meant to lose your family, meant to lose your job, to lose your possessions, to lose your social standing, sometimes to be thrown into prison, to have your property taken from you. And the author of Hebrews commands certain of these people because they showed compassion on those who had been in prison. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 and 26, Paul reminds us that what life in the body means for those who are suffering. 1 Corinthians 12, at verse 25. The members should have the same care one for another, and whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, in nice, polite, middle America that we enjoy the pretty much safety to pr pursue our religious convictions in, we can understand the words to a certain extent, what it is to suffer with those who suffer and know that it's the right thing to do. Uh, we know what it means to go to jail and visit someone in jail, but you don't have any understanding of what it meant in that day and age. Because see, in that culture, it's very hard to change the mentality. The Christianized West introduced a new concept of jail and so forth. The idea of a man being innocent until proven guilty and so forth, and showing compassion and mercy, Christian mercy, even on the guilty and so forth. If you go to jail, it's not likely that you're going to have to answer for going to jail to visit somebody. But in that day and age, if you ministered to somebody who was in prison, you were often imprisoned too. You were considered to be in sympathy with a known criminal. And so when the author commends them for showing compassion on those in bonds, when Jesus says, you go to prison and visit someone, it's as good as visiting mean. This really has um, uh, quite a significant and dramatic meaning that we can miss if we only think of our sterilized culture today. To display sympathy for a condemned prisoner meant placing yourself in peril of undergoing the same condemnation. And yet the author says you did it willingly. And you joyfully allowed your your possessions to be spoiled. They had suffered imprisonment with the inevitable beatings that went with imprisonment. Again, when someone gets beat in prison or in jail today, it's a matter for, you know, exposing the police department and so forth. And, of course, it's horrible when it happens, but praise God you live in a culture where people want to expose that kind of abuse. But you say it was standing operating procedure in the Roman world. You didn't have to wait for your trial to undergo abuse. The very fact that you were put in prison meant that you were, you know, just a free target for anybody who wanted to come along and just take it out on you. And this happened often. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 25, you notice how Paul alludes to that fact. 2 Corinthians 11, 23. Paul says, Are they ministers of Christ? They speak as one beside himself. I more... Why? In labors more abundantly, in prisons more abundantly, and immediately he adds, in stripes above measure, in deaths often. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I was shipwrecked, and so forth. Imprisonment meant almost automatic beating. Not after your conviction, but before your conviction. You remember how Jesus was treated even before he went to trial? See, that's the sort of thing that took place in the ancient world. They had suffered imprisonment with its beatings. They had suffered the confiscation of their property. I'd like to give you some examples of this just from the life of Paul. If you look in the book of Acts, remember Paul was a persecutor of the Christians. I said the, there's this intense hatred of the Christians on the part of the Jews, and Paul is the leading illustration of that. Of course, that's what makes his conversion so dramatic. Acts, the 8th chapter, verse 3. But Saul laid waste the church, entering into every house and dragging men and women, committed them to prison. He had the power to actually go right into the homes of Christians there and to drag them out and take them to prison. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, yet breathing threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, 
went unto the high priest and asked of him letters to Damascus unto the synagogues, that if he found any that were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Not only could he throw people in prison right in Jerusalem, he could go as far as Damascus, according to these um, letters of authorization, and bind people and drag them back to Jerusalem to be tried for being Christians. In chapter 22, verses 3 to 5, Paul reflects upon these early days of persecution. And Paul never got over the guilt of that. You remember how he later considers himself the worst of sinners on earth because he says he persecuted the people of God. And yet, when we think of Paul, we tend to think, I don't know about you, but I would suppose many of you would probably put him at the top of the list of apostles. I mean, here's this wonderful Paul. Paul said, no, I'm the most despicable of men and why God should care for me because he remembers how bad he was how he hated Christians and what he did to them. Acts 22, verses 3 to 5. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cecilia, was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, instructed according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, even as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and journeyed to Damascus to bring them also that were there unto Jerusalem, in bonds to be punished. To be a Christian in that day and age meant that you were open game for the Jews. A man like Paul could come and take you out of your home, put you in prison, take your goods, and even have you killed. And yet the situation that is being described by the author of Hebrews here, very interestingly, has not led to a general martyrdom. I mean, we can almost exactly date this book because of what I'm telling you here. We know that already they have suffered reproach, they have been imprisoned, they've had their property confiscated, but it has not come to the place of general martyrdom. There have been a few, but it's not generally the case. You know that from chapter 12, verse 4 it will take us a while to get to in our study, but tonight we can read this much. The author says, You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. He says, It hasn't come to martyrdom for you yet. And so we can date this almost exactly between the time of the outbreak of persecution, the early church in the second generation, and the Neronian persecution in A.D. 64, where it did come to blood, where there was a general martyrdom of Christians and um, so in a very narrow time frame, we know the author is writing these words. But let's stop and ask ourselves, how is it these early Christians could go through this? I ponder that because as a pastor, I see people today who can hardly endure being made fun of, much less having their property taken away and being put in prison and beaten for being a Christian. Why is it that these people went through this? And the answer is going to seem very simple, but it's also very profound. It's because, one, they loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and two, they loved his people. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ so much that they were willing to give up anything for him. My guess is, the day you became a Christian, you really realized what it meant to have the load of sin taken off of your back, and what it meant to have the hope of glory, that a miserable sinner like you would still be loved by God and received. You would have done anything for Jesus. It's only when we get to the second generation, to the sophisticated side of our Christian growth, that we begin to compromise. We begin to have to ask, would I really die for him today? Out of pure love for Jesus, these people in their early days of conversion, when they were enlightened, were willing to have anything happen to them. And because they loved Jesus, they loved the people who belonged to Jesus. And when those people were persecuted, they said, we'll stand with them. I can assure you, not only from personal experience, but from counseling those who have gone through tough times, that it means everything to you when another Christian comes and stands and says, I'll suffer with you. Only pure love for God and for God's people would lead them to do this sort of thing. And what attitude does suffering for Christ lead us to have? Ask yourself if you're a Christian by considering or comparing yourself to this that when they had their property taken away, the author of Hebrews says, they took joyfully the spoiling of their possessions. Joyfully. Boy, I'd scream and yell. 
I'd not only curse the persecutors, but I'd wonder what has gone wrong with God's world. Where is justice? How can this happen? And yet they joyfully allowed their goods to be taken. You know, you know the, <laughs> the basic nature of man. It's pretty hard to give up the things that you've worked hard for, the things that belong to you. Joyfully, they gave them up. Instead of mourning their loss, they rejoiced that this had happened to them for Christ's sake. That they were so convinced that they were suffering for the sake of Christ. It was an honor for that to happen. I want you to notice that they did not respond in stoic imperturbability. You know, the Stoics taught this idea that when adversity comes into your life, you just have the stiff upper lip and you kind of go with the flow, you know. Just let history take its course and don't fight it and that way it won't be so hard on you. But you see, this wasn't some kind of Stoic, you know, I'll just be passive in the face of suffering. No, they were positively joyful that they could suffer for Christ. I have a number of passages that I want us to look at tonight about suffering for Christ. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. The author of Hebrews says they were joyful to be persecuted for Jesus. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you, happy are you, when men shall reproach you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. He doesn't just say take it with a stiff upper lip. He doesn't just say endure. He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Jump for joy. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Be happy about that. Look at Acts 5, verse 41. The example of the early apostles. Acts 5, at the 41st verse. Please don't tape over at this time. They therefore departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They thought that that was one of the highest joys, that the name of Jesus that was upon them and it was evident in the living of their lives brought persecution on them. That doesn't mean they went out looking for persecution. It meant that when persecution came, they didn't run from it. They didn't mourn over it. They didn't complain about the injustice of it. They rejoiced in it, that for Jesus' sake, they were allowed to suffer. Romans 5, verse 3. And not only so, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation works steadfastness, and steadfastness approvedness, and approvedness hope. And hope puts not to shame. Paul says, we rejoice in our tribulation. Beginning to get the idea here? Everywhere you look in the New Testament, it's the same thing. Tribulation is something to be happy about. Persecution is something to make you joyful. Something to say, that's just great. For the sake of the name of Jesus, I can suffer. Acts 16, 23 to 25. Remember what Paul and Silas did when they were imprisoned in that Philippian jail? Acts 16 at verse 23. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, cast them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks, which means he hurt them. He really bound them tight in the worst part of the inner prison. His jailer wasn't going to let these guys have any mercy. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns unto God, and the prisoners were listening to them. You know, they didn't sit there moaning and groaning or screaming against their persecutors. They sang hymns to God. They were pleased that God would allow them to suffer in his behalf. James chapter 1, verse 2. It's very strange psychological exhortation. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into manifold trials. Count it joy. From beginning to end, the New Testament has this paradoxical thing that persecution is a joyful thing. In James 5, verses 4 and 6, by the way, you'll notice that the early Christians were being economically defrauded 
by the persecuting rich of their day, and some were even being killed. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, Peter gives us something of a theology of suffering when he says, but insomuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, rejoice. Again, rejoice in sufferings, but Peter has this new dimension that the suffering that comes upon you is to be a partaker in the sufferings that belongs to Christ. Philippians 3.10. In our family devotions, we've been going through Philippians, and again, I'm just struck with um, this verse that is so well known, but I think maybe not entirely appreciated, where Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You know what it is to, to fellowship with Christ in suffering, to be a partaker of his suffering, to be with him not just for the glory and for the power and for the resurrection, you know, might that is yours, but to also have communion with him in suffering. So that when you are persecuted as a Christian, you look to Jesus and you say, for your sake, Jesus, I do this. I know it is your suffering that I participate in. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Let me read the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our affliction, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any affliction through the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound unto us, even so our comfort also aboundeth through Christ. We not only enjoy the comfort of Christ, we enjoy the sufferings of Christ as well. And staying in 2 Corinthians, which is really kind of a manifesto on suffering in a way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Paul says, We are pressed on every side, yet not straightened, perplexed, yet not unto despair, pursued, yet not forsaken, smitten down, yet not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus. And look especially at 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 to 10. But in everything, commending ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes. You need to remember that as Paul goes through this list in Greek, that every one of these goes back to and is a way of completing the sentence where he says, in everything, commending ourselves as ministers of God. We commend ourselves as God's ministers in afflictions. We commend ourselves as God's ministers in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, in pureness, in knowledge, in long-suffering, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in love unfeigned, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Uh, I'm indicted. You know, when I read that, I'm just not sure that if everything were taken away from me, my immediate response would be to sing hymns to God and to rejoice and to say, as having nothing and yet possessing all things, being made poor and yet enriching others because I have the gospel to give to them. Then one more passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following. This, I think, will probably be a little better known to you. Paul, responding to the attack on his ministerial office, his apostolic credentials, says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as one beside himself. I more. And then he gives this list of what he has gone through. This is how you see his ministerial office. In labors more abundantly. In prisons more abundantly. In stripes above measure. In deaths oft. 
Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I was suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. And I mean, that would be enough right there for one of us, right? To spend a night and a day in the ocean, wondering if you're going to drown to death. Paul just puts it as just one on the list, you know. This is his resume as a minister of Christ. And journeyings often in perils of rivers, and perils of robbers, and perils from my countrymen, and perils from the Gentiles, and perils in the city, and perils in the wilderness, and perils in the sea, and perils among false brethren, and labor, and travail, and watchings often, and hunger, and in thirst, and fastings often, and cold, and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, there is that which presses upon me daily, anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is caused to stumble? And I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things that concern my weakness. He goes on to say that at one point he had escaped through a window, being let down in a basket while those who would kill him were waiting at the door. But Paul doesn't complain about that. He says, that's the badge of honor. That Jesus has allowed me to suffer for him. This isn't just because Paul had already persecuted the church and he was trying to counterbalance things now. It isn't like Paul's making up for all the terrible things he had done. Paul says this is the lot of all Christians. The apostles, besides Paul, had the same attitude. We see it in Peter. We see it in John. To the man, they rejoiced to suffer persecution for the name. And today, we back off if we're at a party and somebody starts getting snippy about Christianity. We don't want to be, uh, you know, making a scene or, or lose our reputation. These people lost their property. And so very rightly, the author of Hebrews says, I know you're in, in peril of apostasying, but remember the first love? Remember when you first became Christians, you would have done anything for Jesus. And you did. You went to prison for him. And you visited those in prison. You had your property taken away from you. And you joyfully allowed the spoiling of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. How could they be joyful in persecution? How could they be joyful when they were losing their property? Because it wasn't just words for them. They understood what it meant, that they had a better possession. You can take everything away from me in this world. Christians should say, I have something far better that I'm going to. And in fact, what you take from me in this world, it's going to wither away. It's going to rust. It's going to corrupt. It's going to be gone eventually. But the, but the possession that I have in heaven will never, ever fade away. It's an abiding possession, a permanent possession, and a much better one. You know, if we kept that in mind, then we would be able to endure persecution. Because we'd say, so what's the present moment worth? So people disdain me. So they mistreat me. So I'm even unjustly defrauded of my goods for being a Christian. Praise God, for his name I can suffer. Because I'm going to a place where no one can take it away. Where thieves cannot break in and steal. Unlike the possession of the Jews in Palestine, which... Enemies would come and, and uh, take them into bondage, uh, and, and they'd have the blight of winter, and crops wouldn't grow sometimes. I'm going to a place where there never are those kind of problems, where there's not going to be nothing but the security of God's blessing for all eternity. Author of Hebrews says, They took joyfully the spoiling of their possessions, knowing that they had for themselves a better possession and an abiding one. And so the author says, Cast not away, therefore, your boldness, which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of endurance that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. The author has told them, don't sin willfully after you've received the knowledge of the truth. Let me remind you, when you first became Christians, you suffered a great deal and you were willing to do it. You joyfully did it because you knew of that possession. And so he's, don't cast it away. Don't throw it away. I mean, you've gotten to the fourth quarter of the game. Don't give up. A call to perseverance in the face of uh, discouraging hardship is needed. In Hebrews 3, verse 12, 
the author has remembered the example of the Old Testament Jews in the wilderness. Just as an example, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest aptly there be any one of you, in any one of you, an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. He has cited um, the example in the wilderness where uh, because the Jews hardened their hearts, they were not allowed to enter into the promised land. He says, now you be careful that that doesn't happen to you. In Numbers 14, verse 3, I'm out of time, so I won't read all these, but in Numbers 14, 3, we read that the Jews in the wilderness at one point ask, should we not go back to Egypt? Should we not turn back? In Deuteronomy 32, 15, in the, in the uh, Song of Moses, they mocked the rock that had delivered them, Moses says. And they turned away from the living God. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They gave up. God had brought them so far. The author of Hebrews is telling us in our Christian experience that can happen to us. God has brought us so far. He says, don't throw it away. Don't throw your confidence away. Don't think about going back now. Don't give up on what God has done in your life. Hebrews 6, verse 11 And we desire that each one of you may show the same diligence unto the fullness of hope, even to the end. That you may show diligence unto the full assurance of hope, even to the end. You need to persevere. You need to fight on because, you see, perseverance in the long run is the only thing that distinguishes between the true wheat and from the shallow rooted seed. The only thing that distinguishes is between the wheat and the tares is that the wheat perseveres to the end, doesn't throw away its confidence. Notice how he says this is essential to the will of God. Cast not away, therefore, your boldness, which has great recompense and reward, for you have need of endurance, that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Those who do not persevere to the end have not done God's will, and they will not receive Receive what God has promised. Revelation 2, verses 25 and 26. And with this, I'll bring this very long study to a close tonight. Revelation 2, 25. Nevertheless, that which you have, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh, and he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and so forth and so on. The promises of God are for those who persevere to the end. The whole point of the author of Hebrews then tonight is to tell his readers, don't give up what you've already gained. And he reminds them very affectionately and tenderly and with commendation. When you first loved Jesus, when you were first enlightened, you suffered a great deal and you did it joyfully. Don't give up now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask you tonight to give us again that first love that each and every one of us had for you, that love that was willing to go the full distance to do anything for you because we knew what it was to have the refreshing assurance and hope that God would love us despite our sins and receive us into his family and give us eternal life. Give us the assurance of the abiding possession that is ours, that better possession that is yet to come. Help us to be able to not only say those words, but to feel them very deeply in our hearts so that we would be willing to be despoiled of our goods, be willing to be made a laughing stock of men, a spectacle before the world, be willing to be renounced by our families, to have our businesses ruined, indeed to lose all of our social standing and reputation and not simply to do it Lord with a sense of patience and silence but to do it with singing your praise joyfully taking this abuse for the sake of your name Lord Jesus we thank you for being abused for us we thank you that you were a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief we thank you that you were willing to have all men turn against you, to despitefully treat you, to unjustly crucify you, and revile you while you did not revile in return. How we thank you you did that for us. Help us to share in your sufferings, to know not only the power of your resurrection, but the fellowship of suffering with you. 
and to know the pleasure of it, to know the honor of it. Give us perseverance to the very end, that having begun the Christian life, we would not give up that which has been accomplished already, that we would not turn back and ask if we should return to Egypt, that we would have faith in the living God. Give us such strength, not simply that we might enjoy you forever, but that all the glory would come to your name because it is so richly deserved. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.